Welcome to Non-Consensus Investing. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and CIO at Lumida Wealth, where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. At Lumida, we help guide clients through the intricacies of managing substantial wealth so they don't have to shoulder the burden alone. Through this podcast, we draw back the curtain to reveal the strategies employed by the best in the business for their high net worth clients so that you too can invest beyond the ordinary. All right. How's everyone doing? Wow. Big news yesterday. I'm really excited to have Tracy Wing and Zach Guzman join Justin and I. Those of you who know Justin, you might not know Justin's former trial litigator. He's also a lawyer. Don't let that fool you. Excited to have his perspective here too. And Tracy was part of the team at Coindesk that broke the news around SBF and these issues sometime last year. Now she's a freelance reporter and works with different trades, including Rolling Stone. And Zach Guzman is the founder of Coinage. Now, both of them were at the courthouse. So there are a couple of topics we want to dig in today. There's so much analysis on SBF. I think actually taking it a different direction and talking about one, what is it like to be in the courtroom? Like when you get up in the morning, there's the main room, the overflow room, there's the defendant seating and the plaintiff seating. And how does that work? And then talking about reactions and the, the media circus key moments, like when the verdict was delivered, when certain people gave testimony, was there bated breath? Was there a size of relief? I think getting into the emotional angle around here could be really cathartic. And it's a perspective that I haven't seen many people talk about. Tracy, why don't we, why don't we start with you? Where, do, where you would like to lead in terms of the courtroom experience? I, I'm sure Zach can also speak to this, but being a member of the press covering the SBF trial, it's it's just wild. There's only 21 seats in the courtroom allocated to press, and there's probably, I want to say, 70 outlets that have been interested in covering the trial. And we also got to throw in the individual influencers or people that do their own, that run their own show. And some days, if it's like a key testimony, like when SBF himself was about to testify, people lined up as early as 11 p.m. the evening before. There were some people that hired line sitters on TaskRabbit, which, which was controversial. And you basically wait for a spot and hope that you get into the 21 that lets you be in the main room. And then all of the trial is open to the public, so anybody who is interested in watching the court marshals, they open up these overflow rooms with a live stream. So you can just, they open up, I think even at peak demand, there was only two overflow rooms that were open. And so basically anybody who wanted to drop by could drop by. And I would talk to some of the people in the overflow rooms and some of them range from other people that work in the crypto industry. A lot of the people were also lawyers that perhaps were representing other witnesses. There were just like curious members of the public. Some people weren't even that into crypto. I was talking to this guy who like makes music and he said, I was just in New York City for the day and I decided to pop in. And so it was really like a island of misfit toys in terms of people um, watching the trial. Tourist attraction. Zach, how about yourself? What's your take there? Yeah, it, there was there was a trio of moms from the UK who who have trial to their list of sightseeing to do while they were in New York, which I thought was pretty hilarious and just showed the draw. Uh, 
they didn't want to say whether or not they thought he was guilty, but they did say that they were going to brag to their sons about being in the courtroom, which they were in the overflow room. So I guess we'll let them stretch the truth on that one. But no, Tracy's right. I, I think it was a gauntlet for press and journalists trying to cover this because not only did you have to get there super early, as she described, but you had to pay attention to everything. You couldn't miss any details. So it was not only a test of how much sleep could you get away with, but also could your brain function on two hours of sleep? And I maybe I was weaker than most, but I just gave up on the idea of waiting in line and was perfectly content with the overflow room for some of the days. But I was there for when Caroline Ellison was testifying. And yeah, it was a test of strength. It was a test of mental capacity and sleep. In the end, I think mostly everybody was just happy that it was pretty quick relative to how long this could have taken. There were a few celebrity sightings. So Michael Lewis did appear in the courtroom for when Sam took the stand and everybody was like a little starstruck by Michael Lewis. There was also Ben McKenzie, who is the OC actor who pivoted into being a crypto critic and, and, and wrote a book about it. Um, he was also in the courtroom for many of the days. Yeah. Yeah, I think there was that. And I feel like the like kind of it got feisty at times. I do want to say, Tracy, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I feel like it got a little sometimes people are trying to save seats in between the lunch break. So obviously, if you're there super early, some people put like papers down on their chairs and they're like, don't steal my chair. And then other times Michael Lewis was there and it's you know the guy's gonna and I don't know, it got feisty sometimes in there. But for the most part, it was camaraderie, I think, among everybody trying to figure out how did it get feisty exactly? It was just physical space constraints or reactions to what was being presented or? One, there was like a meta game in that there, you know that there's only 21 seats and more, there is more demand than supply. And so part of it is a guessing game. Nobody wanted to reveal what time they would show up. Because if I said, hey, I'm thinking about showing up at three, then someone's going to beat me to it and show up at 2.59. And it was part of this. I know towards the later days, there was this kind of guessing game of when somebody, like nobody wanted to reveal what time they wanted to show up and nobody wanted to publicly make a statement about a time because that would anchor everybody else's opinions and they would go and beat that. So that was fun. It's like Shakespeare in the park. Correct. And there was division among the journalists. Some people were like, line sitters, that's not allowed. And also there were many different outlets out there and some people just, some outlets just had more resources. There was also a press room on the fourth floor. So I know a lot of people have been following the trial via the Twitter account, Inner City Press. And there are some type of outlets that if they are regular SDNY court reporters, they have um, a dedicated cubicle in this really sad looking press room on the fourth floor. So they're able to have computer access. But for everybody else, you have to check in your laptop and your phone when you walk into the courthouse so you can't live tweet it. So that's why Inner City Press, he gets to live tweet it. And also a lot of the legacy outlets, say AP, Reuters, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, I think the big name brands that have regular court coverage, they have reporters that uh, sit in the courtroom and can just get stuff out really fast. That makes sense. That clarifies. Justin. Yeah. So I think my first observation is how beautiful is the American court system? Right. We're just here talking about press access and overflow rooms. This is all public, though, right? In some places, somebody who has committed these types of crimes might not have the benefit of a public trial. Obviously, it didn't go his way. I don't think it was ever going to go his way, considering the facts. But I think it's an amazing feature of the American system that the press is invited in. This was open to the public. 
and that this was uh, something that everybody can see. As you said, people just stopped in. It was not something that was closed off from the public. So I think that's an important observation that maybe we're glossing over a little bit here. But then to hear some of your insights, I'd love to know what was the vibe like when some of the people who were in his inner circle, SBF's inner circle, came in and testified? Because that's a highly emotional moment in any type of trial when the witnesses have a personal relationship with the defendant. And there was a lot of that, right? SBF is undone by that testimony, among other things. But what was that like? Could, was it palpable? Was there any kind of interpersonal interactions that they look at each other or was he avoiding any eye contact? Yeah, Tracy, I don't know what you saw, but going into it, that was what was top of mind for me because I actually went to Sam's house before the trial began and chatted with him about where his mind was. And one of the big questions I had was, why are you still doing this if you're gonna be going up against three co-conspirators? As we learned, there wasn't exactly a plea deal on the table for him to really consider anyways. I was surprised to learn in our discussions when I was there that he really didn't have ill will, at least that's what he said. I found it hard to believe towards his friends, in the case of Gary, he's known him for years, like a basically a childhood friend. And the idea of, I guess he didn't really see it, I don't think, as like them turning on him so much as they were doing what was in their own best interest. And people always talk about who the real Sam is. I don't know. I feel the more I've gotten to know him, the more it is true that he's very much calculating all kinds of things at all times and really removes emotions from a lot of those decisions. And the sense that I had going into it was that he really didn't hold those types of grudges against people doing what was in their best interests. And in the courtroom, I couldn't really get a sense of if any of that had changed when they were up on the stand because he's facing them. And when I was in the courtroom for the Caroline Ellison testimony, I didn't really get a sense of any of that, even when they were asking, by the way, about their past sex lives, right? And I came up in the trial, there wasn't too much to go off of in the room, I did see Sam's mom was obviously for most of the trial, her head was almost always in her hands. And that was even true before he went to jail in those hearings. So Tracy, I don't know if you had anything else on that, but to me, it felt almost passionless in a sense. It's really hard to read Sam because first off, he doesn't express emotion at all. He has told Michael Lewis, he does not feel emotion. And I do think he did want to, he was very upset that his friends pleaded guilty and testified against him. The fact that he, over the summer, leaked Caroline and his like private documents to the New York Times was really like a spite move to smear your ex. I think it backfired on him because ultimately she came off as super sympathetic and the jury was like nine women, three men. And so I don't know if it really worked out for him, but I do think he was very upset at his, at his former friends for pleading guilty. The other thing about the whole co-conspirators testifying was Sam was always the public face of FTX. Like after nobody really even knew who the other people were, they were very limited media interviews and nobody even had any pictures of them of Gary Wang and, and so for the first time ever it was like oh my gosh now we know what Gary Wang sounds like <laughs> and I would say there was a lot of anticipation for just seeing who these people were in person nobody knew even what Gary looks like or what Nishad looked like and somebody next to me and I was in the room for the Caroline testimony and when a new witness walks in 
they walk in from behind the rows. And so think of the courthouse as like a church chapel. And this person was like, this is like a strange wedding, isn't it? We're all sitting in these rows. And then when a new witness walks in, we're all walking, we're all looking behind Caroline, just walking down the aisle to the witness stand. And it's just, this is a perverted wedding. And Gary did say that, I think Gary and Ashad were, Gary was very like, he's also emotionist. I think he said that he wanted to be the first one to get a plea deal in case there was no other, there were no plea deals left to offer. And Nishad only pled guilty much later in February. And there was actually an exhibit where Sam in December, he writes out this Google note, like, why hasn't Nishad pled guilty yet? And I think Caroline, he really did, since she was more important than the other two witnesses as CEO of Alameda, I think he really did try to smear her. Except in a court setting, you have to realize that in a court setting, everything is very controlled. You can't, if you're on the witness stand, you can't even say a run-on sentence without getting objected to. It's like objection, like it's like a very controlled environment. And SBF does not do well in very controlled environments. Like he thrives in this no rules area where he can just do whatever he wants. And in the courtroom, he's like sitting there in his chair. He can't move. There's these two like court marshals behind him that are like basically monitoring his every move. And I think all the smearing happened out of court because he wouldn't even have gotten those documents admitted into evidence because there's like all these really, really strict rules, which I'm sure, Justin, you can, you can talk about, but you can't even, there's, you can't just bring something up in court or else you'll be, it'll be objected to, it'll be stricken out. And so everything you say has to be relevant. And so it just was not a great environment for him. Yeah. Just briefly on that, the rules of evidence are very detailed, but it's generally is the evidence more probative than prejudicial, a simplistic framework to think about. What does probative mean? Probative of, it, it, does it shed more light on the question at issue versus prejudice the jury against the defendant? Oh, I see. You get an objection if it's prejudicial. That's a rule of evidence. Like, how can you introduce something? If you wanted to say somebody was a bad actor, was it probative of the actions they took in this case? Or is it prejudicial? This person is, has a bad habit of drinking. That wouldn't really matter if the question is a financial crime here. So that would be prejudicial versus probative. Oh, they've stolen money previously. On that, yeah, on that point, we, again, had an early insight before all this happened, before he got detained for leaking Caroline Ellison's diaries. We had a look at, and we report this out on coinage was his defense in terms of what he wanted to include. And then the pretrial motions that were in front of Judge Kaplan, basically, as Justin's pointing out, most of that got tossed and was never even allowed in, whether it's full on advice of counsel defense in terms of Sam saying, I only did this because the lawyer signed off on it and everything was fine. That didn't make it in. And Judge Kaplan was never going to be having that. And the other things, and including pieces about Binance's role in the collapse, which honestly didn't really matter much when it comes to a lot of actions that were taken years before that even happened in November of 2022. A lot of these crimes and a lot of the charges that Sam was found guilty of had more to do with the actions that he took when things were fine, in, in the idea of setting up some of these bank accounts and using funds the way he did. And when we talked to Bernie Madoff's former prosecutor for our series digging into his defense, he did point out that a lot of this stuff was never going to get included, though Sam may have wanted to. And one of the big questions I have, which I'd love to hear come to light, is how much his defense 
let Sam take the lead on some of this stuff because in the courtroom he did. Mark Cohen, before he ever rapped on most things, would always take a step to go over and look at Sam or Sam would be whispering to him during examinations, cross-examinations of other witnesses. I don't know how heavy-handed Sam was in this. And when you ask other lawyers and Justin, I don't know, I don't know what you made of it, but from the outside looking in as journalists, maybe a lot of us aren't criminal journalists or now that we're crypto journalists, maybe that comes with the shtick. But watching it all play out, I know a lot of people were very critical of Mark Cohen and Sam's defense for the way they handled this case. And I'm quite curious to know whether or not Sam made it harder on them or not. But a lot of the stuff he wanted to include never even made it in. Yeah, I would say when defendants are guilty, they always make it harder on their lawyers. Speaking from hindsight, he's found guilty and there was a lot of evidence of it. So that makes it a very uphill battle for an attorney. You want as an attorney to listen to your client and you have an obligation to zealously advocate for them. And so it's important to have those kinds of during trial dialogues and hear their perspective. But a seasoned attorney is going to understand what they can and cannot uh, do and what's permissible in court. And they'll understand the role of the jury and the ability to kind of influence that perspective that the jury has when they're looking at that interaction, because you certainly wouldn't want to ignore your client if they're trying to get your attention, because that would be viewed very negatively because now they're going to say, oh gosh, even the lawyer doesn't want to listen to his own client. So Whatever the lawyer is thinking as he leans in or she leans in to hear what their client has to say, it's always going to be viewed or should be as really intent listening to understand their perspective. And then you stand up and you decide, is that the best thing to do or not? And you always want to make the best case. So sometimes it'll help you ask a question or cover territory that you forgot to cover or uncover something and sometimes you just ignore it because it's it's baseless and it will hurt the case were there any emotional moments i think caroline actually broke down in tears at one point i heard sbf not after the verdict was read but prior to that he when he was presenting his case he had an emotional moment were there any of those moments on stage i would say that caroline definitely broke down in tears and that was the one really only major cry in the entire trial. A lot of the witnesses are these nerdy, like Adam Yadidia, Nishad Singh, and Gary. I would say more so Gary than Nishad. They're these very quantitative-minded, nerdy people that don't really break down in tears. But Caroline, there was this moment in her testimony where there's this text message that's pulled up in the exhibit where she tells SBF in, in the message that... I'm actually, this is the ha this is while FTX is collapsing. And she says, this is the happiest I've been in over a year. And the text message makes her look a little deranged. Oh, how could you be so happy in this moment that is like terrible? And then she explains and says that it was really her worst fear. It was the this week in November was the worst week of her entire life. And she had been stressing for months about when all of this was going to come to light. And she felt so bad about stealing customer funds. And it was just like sad in that moment that the only person she could vent to was her kind of shitty ex-boyfriend, Sam Bakeman Freed, who she is now testifying against. And then she started crying. And I felt like that was a pretty sympathetic moment for Caroline. Yeah, she was dating Lex Luthor, effectively, like the, ma the criminal mastermind here, and who was also her boss. 
And yeah, it looks like she had a cathartic moment by speaking her truth and she had a conscience. I think that would do well for her at sentencing. And the other emotional moment was, I can't tell if it was just like theatrics, but this was, I wasn't in the room here, but it was after Sam's defense lawyer finished his closing statement. And given the evidence and the facts are not really on his side, he basically was like pleading to the jury. Like it was like a humanitarian argument almost. And Sam perhaps out of theatrics, apparently he his nose was a little pink and it looked like he had some water in his eye. But I wonder that was during the closing argument, or was that that, that was... was a closing argument? So... That's, per- that's performative, right? Come on, I gotta believe that was performative. I did not see any of that during his verdict, so perhaps it... exactly. <laughs> I think Ram, you you used the term earlier when you called it a stage. So there are it's a lot of performative features of that, and I would say Caroline Ellison maybe found a conscious because she was a integral actor in this for years. And you discover those things when you realize the the jig is up. I look, I she needs to be held accountable. They all do. I'm really curious to see how that unfolds. But I believe that SBF selected her to run Alameda because in part he felt he had some ability to control her emotionally at the very least. So I am a bit more sympathetic for her story. I'm not again she needs to be held accountable, of course. It's relative, right? It's relative to between zero sympathy and something slightly greater than zero sympathy. It, it, it is relative. And you, it's like, how do you mete out punishment to all these actors? Well, obviously, SBF had Kingpin needs to go away for a long time. Now what happens to all the rest is a, is a next set of questions. And I'm sure... How long? I saw that poll on, a poll on Twitter. I'd love to hear what you all think. Somebody's asked 30 plus, 15 to 30 five to 15 or one to five years, like A, how much do you think he should? And then B, how much do you think he'll get? Yeah, I've been thinking about that for a while too, because if you think about why he even did this, that was another question is like, why didn't he just try and arrange a plea deal and just apologize from the very beginning? And if there wasn't a plea deal on the table, what else are you going to do? And I think this is definitely one that the SDNY wanted to put on trial because they want the glory there too of taking down SBF. And it wasn't, it didn't take a long time for them to put that press conference together right after it was guilty across the board. So they were enjoying it and they did a great job, by the way, the prosecution was spot on during this. I think that was unanimous across the board that Sam's defense really struggled and the prosecution came to play. And for Sam taking the stand, that's another thing that really I think is true to form for him taking the big gamble to do that. And then lose, I think in sentencing, he didn't do himself any favors, right? In terms of not answering the questions, arguably perjuring himself, depending on what comes out. There's a lot of things here to make me point to when it comes to sentencing guidelines. And Justin, you probably know more about this than I do. But in my discussions with other attorneys, it sounds like decades for sure. And didn't do himself any favors by taking the stand and taking this one to trial and not exactly being the most cooperative in the actual trial itself. But... I don't know. When you put it all into context, I'm not necessarily of the mind that this was the most 110 years a long time. And I think he probably looked at it. I know he looked at it because I asked him, how are you looking at a plea deal versus actually going the distance on this? And I remember him saying that his thinking around it was, look, I'm 30, 31. If I go to jail for 20 years, my life's over essentially as I would live it 
anyways. So who cares if I'm in there till I'm 50, 60, 70, 80, it's gone. So I think that was his thinking. Yeah, his expected value analysis didn't quite work out, right? This is the guy that said that he'd be willing to risk the entire world on a coin flip if you could double the expected value of the world. Clearly didn't work out there. What are your impressions of Danielle Sassoon? She seems like quite an impressive prosecutor. And I feel like there's some unsung heroes on the Department of Justice that we need to start bringing into the light. Yes, there's a lot of folks in the characters on the defense side, uh, but she seems to have done an, an incredible job. I thought all of the lawyers were really whip smart. And I don't know anything about <laughs> what this is my first time covering a trial and the fact that they have they have to write pages upon pages of paperwork. And I'm sure there's a lot of people helping them in the background. But even during her, I think Danielle Sassoon, during her cross-examination of Sam, that was when she really showed. She knew she had an encyclopedic memory of all of the statements that Sam had said before. And if he would even contradict himself a little bit, she was like on his ass. And that was really impressive. I also think that the prosecution team, optics matter in a court. It is theatrics. You're performing in front of a jury. But they were like, in general, everybody is just dressed super sharp. And when all of the USAs, just the, sorry, the AUSA, so the assistant US attorneys on the case, they just file in with their shiny hair and really impressive <laughs> looking suits. They just look really powerful. And you're like, oh God, I don't want to be on the other side of that. That is, it's interesting. It's like subtle persuasion, right? Yeah. And it may be a form of intimidation or I, I don't know what the right, is Justin, is there a strategy? Of course there is around that. I, in some regard, you're required to wear a suit. I had to wear a suit to take the bar exam in the state of Virginia. There is a, a requirement of certain decorum. So you're going to be ready and prepared. I'm guessing that the attorneys who, when you go to trial, and I was a civil litigator, I did not do uh, criminal defense or any prosecution work. It's a grind. It's a grind to get to trial. It's a grind when you're going through trial because you are preparing you are going through documents, you are prepping witnesses, and you're sleeping very uh, little, and you're pounding coffee. And when you're not up, you're trying to stay awake during the trial. And those monotonous days in court drag when you're prepping. So they may have looked impressive to everybody else. I bet they probably are surprised to hear that because they're probably dragging into the courtroom thinking, oh, geez, let's just let's operate on all cylinders today. A lot of adrenaline, though. There's a lot of adrenaline when you get in and you start going. And so you're exhausted when the day ends and then you go back the next morning and start over. Yeah, as much as, as Danielle Sassoon was really impressive, I'd also give a shout out to Nicholas Rose as well, the other assistant uh, U.S. attorney there, because uh, shout out to Coindesk, by the way. I mean, that that was the reporting there was cited in the trial a lot. And a lot of people were making the, the remarks that it was what? Tracy, one year to the day, I think, that you guys published the, the balance sheet. The other thing, too, was it was also Nicholas Rose who put the open sea trader convicted of insider trading in prison. And he was actually going in the same day that the SBF verdict came down. So it was a bit of a double whammy, I think, for Nicholas Rose, the prosecutor, because that was going on. Well, he also got this win against SBF. Yeah, they're very serious when it comes to crypto crimes. Absolutely. What are some of the other key moments that we talked about, Caroline? moments that stuck out for you? Or are there any like awkward tensions? Maybe like Caroline's passing SBF, they make eye contact or Michael Lewis goes in the break room 
Was there any drama like that that took place? I mean, there's like minor drama that I just find funny. Like apparently in the overflow room, somebody was vaping underneath a jacket and that made it into this New York magazine like story. And just, it was like, just like a fun, lighthearted story about what goes on in the overflow rooms. And then I, why they probably have some intern that's like scraping all the news stories and reading it. But one day a court martial, when he was taking off a bunch of reporters in the elevator, he's, we've heard reports that they've been vaping in the courtrooms and we're really cracking down on it. And so just the fact that they were like reading everything that the journalists are writing about the trial and then just that little detail about somebody vaping underneath a, a jacket and then they slightly scolded us but overall there's some fun little things like that but the other moment that really did stick out to me was yesterday when the verdict was delivered and imagine like all of these journalists we've been now waiting around for at least 12 hours and it's and the jury had requested to stay late I think they were going to get free dinner and cars and basically like taxis or Ubers back home. And the hard stop was 8 p.m. I think that's when the court had to actually close. But all of the reporters, we were just hanging around to see if a verdict would be reached. And we went on a lunch break, had a pizza party and the dinner. I think it, it had the feeling of after school, when the building is empty, like all the teachers are gone, all the class, all the students are gone, and you're just like roaming around the halls and it's all empty. That was the vibe. And so at seven, it was like already almost eight. And we thought, gosh, there's no way there's going to be a verdict that'll be reached. Apparently just 30 minutes ago, the jury had passed a note asking for certain transcripts of certain parts of testimonies. And we're like, oh gosh, they're still reading through the transcripts. There's no way they're gonna reach a verdict. And then at 7.40, um, the, one of the, I think it's a clerk, he was like, a verdict has been reached. And then that's when everybody was like all shocked. Everybody was like, people were like lying on the benches, doing crosswords, we were like eating snacks. And everybody was like scrambling to get a seat. And then Damien Williams, who is the, assistant, sorry, he's the district attorney for the Southern District of New York. He files in looking all important, sits like right at the front and everybody's, and then all the lawyers file in, Sam files in. And it, I, I, I want to say that was definitely the most tense moment of the entire trial. It's holy shit, we're going to reach a verdict. We've been here for five weeks. And the mood was just so serious. Like I could see Barbara Freed and Joe Bankman in the row right across from me and they were like their faces Joe's face was like bright red and it was they knew it was bad if they come back that quickly yeah I think for yeah I think that's when the real shock was like oh it's probably gonna be guilty we didn't know if we were gonna have to come back on Monday and then there's all these theatrics like the lead juror has to stand and Sam stands and they deliver the verdict and after the first guilty and then the second guilty and then the third guilty and we're like okay it's probably gonna be all guilty and that's when it was dead serious for the entire time people you might think it's a meme it's a joke haha vaping this that and at that moment it was like this is the hammer of justice being brought down. And that I thought was like, I just felt bad for the guy, even though I wanted to see him. I did want that outcome. But then you look over at his parents and they're just like, like his dad was like bent over, just I thought he had like fainted. And that's when 
it was like really serious. And even I felt embarrassed. I was like trying, I was staying after in the room. I really wanted to see Sam turn around. I wanted to see the expression on his face. And so his parents, so after the jurors filed out and the attorneys filed out, Sam was still in the room whispering with his attorneys. And his parents went like as close as they possibly could to him without passing the little barrier. And then there was like a horde of 30 reporters just like right behind the parents. And I was like, if Sam turns around, I don't really want him to see my face in between his parents. And I just felt so embarrassed. So I was like, I'm going to move a little further back just so I'm not like in this moment. And it was like, it was very serious and it was actually very somber and quite powerful, I think. Did they embrace? So the parents cannot touch him, right? He's, they're physically separated. Yeah. Yeah, that was a similar vibe that happened when he first got put into handcuffs. That was the same. It was the same kind of. I think I remember feeling like it was a funeral at that point because it was to use Tracy's marriage analogy. It felt like a funeral then because everyone was quiet and shuffled out of the room, and they're like, "No one should watch him be put into handcuffs." They like made sure everyone was gone. But it was the same thing. His mom tried to run towards the barrier and talk to him and embrace him, and they were like, "Stand back!" And I was like, "That was when it felt real too." But yeah, yeah, freedom was extinguished through the mechanism of justice and you saw that unfold how, how do you maintain objectivity when you're covering a character or a story where you've got a point of view and tracy you broke this story last year about the balance sheet i'm sure over time you and zach probably had a view like this guy is guilty how do you maintain objectivity in the media trying to tell the story when you've got a perspective fortunately i don't have to do that this guy's just guilty he's gonna go to jail for a long time I don't have an obligation like you do in the media. I'm curious how you, does that even come up as a consideration or do editors push back and you say, look, you got to take that line out or no, you got to show the other side. The trade-off between truth and your perspective and discovery. I'm glad you asked that one actually, because that's why I quit to start Coinage because I think people talk about bias in the media all the time and the idea of objectivity. And I think it's a farce. I don't think anyone ever can completely be objective. I think it's impossible because we all have our reactions to things. We're not robots, though some of us might be more robotic than others. And so I don't know. I feel what we started Coinage for was being community-owned. So everyone can weigh in on our coverage, what stories we tell, which guests we have on, how we tell these things. And at the end of the day, I think that this was really exciting because it was the first time that you, know, you saw Sam not be able to wiggle out of anything. And I think my camera may have just died there. Maybe I'll pass, maybe I'll pass the mic over to Tracy a little bit here. I'll figure out what I know. You can continue. We can still hear you. Yeah. That's one of the things is that you want to tell the truth on these things. And a trial is the only way. Power of subpoenas is the only way you know someone's not going to lie. Right. And Sam lied to a lot of people in the media. And that's basically what this trial, this trial highlighted is like reporters, even when they're doing their job, sometimes get lied to. Right. And that's hard. He was exploiting the media. And there's a lot of criticism in the media around how they built him up, but Sam took advantage of the media. He was very expert at that and trading information with the media and these backs. And now that came back to bite him, of course, right? When he called the uh, regulators, whatever he called the regulators. Tracy, do you want to share your perspective on being objective when you got a point of view? I just feel like there are a lot of facts in the story that if you just stick to pointing to the facts, it tells the story for you. And there have been times where I've been, I do feel like sometimes there are small untruths that are said. I think, for example, even the 
prosecution is trying to spin a narrative. I've actually been inside his penthouse. It's not as nice as the photos. <laughs> and it looked like a weird dorm room almost. And it was not nearly as nice as the photos. And I would point that out in, in my reporting of it. And I just think that there is no need to be... I, I feel like with the SBF story in particular, the story is already so good and so juicy that there is no need to embellish it. If you have a dull story and there is no drama and you're trying to give it a spin to make it a little bit more lively or a little bit more Hollywood, in this case, there, there's just not even a need to do that. And so I felt if you embellish it or try to suggest certain things that didn't happen, it's like you're just doing yourself a disservice because the things that happened are already so juicy and crazy that it, there is no need to. Yeah. Right on. We've got Zach back. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I fixed that. But yeah, no, I think it's important it's funny. I've been asked about it a lot. We had a discussion too with Teddy Schleifer at Puck because he also went out to talk to Sam ahead of the trial. And when you have those discussions and the way that Sam, I think, was able to play the media, when you're controlling who gets those stories, I asked Teddy too, like, why do you think we went out there? What do you think Sam was trying to do? And Tracy wrote a story about exactly this point, I think, about who he gave access to and when Tiffany Fong being included. It's like all of that stuff is a calculation, I think, right? And Playing the media is definitely something that a lot of people in crypto do, and Sam was the best at it. There's no perfect system, no perfect mechanic. Fair point. I am curious, Zach, why do you think Sam invited you over to his house on house arrest? I, at the time, I felt special. At the time, if you asked me then, it was because I'm one of the greatest, and he wanted me to tell his story. This is what I thought at the time. And then we get into the trial, and I feel like an idiot because it's like literally thousands of people had passed through his house. So definitely not that. <laughs> I don't know. I think obviously we have a relationship, right? Same thing with a lot of people in the industry. This is a relationship game. And I think when the shit hits the fan, you turn to people that you can like say, hey, how are you going to tell the stories? What's really going on here? What do you think's happening? And I remember he asked me, he's like, what do you think happened here? I'm like, bro, I, I have not even looked into any of this right now. And then as the details came out, I think everybody, I, I think the pendulum also swings though. To your question on wanting blood, in something like this, almost everything that he would say would automatically be turned the other way. And I feel like the pendulum did swing to a point where like even objective truths were being misconstrued a little bit to the other side, which is also interesting to think about. But who's going to want to defend that guy at the end of the day, right? No one was going to do that. So I don't know. I also think with Sam in particular, he cared about media not as like an ends, only as a means to achieve what he wanted. And so what he was ultimately after on his way up was a lot of power, a lot of influence. And if he found that he could inflate his net worth to Forbes or get this fluff piece written about him and this news outlet, and that basically would help him do all of these things that were good for his business, he would do that. And on the way down, he found that if I could do this thing that could potentially help my trial or, or discredit Caroline or, or whatnot, it was always like a tool in his arsenal. And I don't think he cared really about people who were shitting on him on Twitter, those SBF go die. Like, I don't really think he cared about that. Or he didn't really care about what those people individually thought, but only if that could potentially uh, only if the narrative around that would cause it to be more likely that he was found guilty. And if you put on your Sam Bankman free thinking cap and just think, okay, given that I know Sam thinks like this and he's trying to get this out of me, 
what is the, you, you have then as a journalist, you have two conflicting things that you want to achieve. Like one, you want to tell the truth, but also you want to still continue having a relationship with this guy. But ultimately one will have to outright weigh the other. And it's okay, even if this guy never talks to me again and, and you're like, oh gosh, I got to burn this bridge. It is, do you have the goods from him that is substantial enough? And so I think with the media, it's just, I think Sam just ultimately, if you know what goal he's after and you know that you're going to help him do that, you have an obligation to, okay, if what he wants me to write is also true, let me think about if, I guess there is, it's, oh, but if this damages my relationship with him, but it's true, then you have to like... There's a lot of information that journalists sit on that never sees the light of day just because it can't be valid. It's something else I've learned to appreciate just talking to journalists. A lot of things out there that aren't published. Why don't we bring it to the sentencing phase? We can wrap it up in the next two minutes. Questions, thoughts there, Justin? I'm just curious to see what happens between now and the sentencing phase. Will there be more revelations? Will there be other statements made about others in an attempt to create opportunity for different sentences. And I think that'll be an intriguing part of this phase. And then also, I think it's a lot of people lost a lot of money. A lot of people had reputations tarnished. So I think there'll be also a feeling of conclusion when there is ultimately a sentence handed down. And hopefully it's a long one because I would say he deserves it. And I have no qualms about saying he can spend the rest of his life in jail. And it's fine with me. I guess <laughs> I, I have no all... real, I have no real thoughts on the sentencing. I, I couldn't really give you an estimate of how many years, but I do wonder if this guilty verdict is the end of the quote unquote game for Sam. Cause if you think about the way Sam McMafried views the world, he is always going to double down if he thinks he is if it's going to get him out of the hole. And arguably he has, since he was indicted, that wasn't the end for him. He was still playing his games. He didn't take his bail condition seriously. He got sent to jail. He was just convicted yesterday and his lawyers were still like, Mr. Franklin Freed maintains his innocence. We're gonna keep on fighting it. He, his lawyers are gonna appeal for sure. And I just wonder, it seems like in his mind, the game is still continuing. So I wonder, will he pull additional shenanigans from jail? And what's up next? And at a certain point, you're, he's so down bad <laughs> that you're like, stop it, Sam, just take the L. <laughs> and, but that's not the way he thinks. He's like, oh, I'm going to flip another coin. I'm going to, I'm going to make it all back in one trade. And so I don't, I'm not sure that the guilty verdict we heard yesterday was the end of the game for him. And so that makes me, I guess, a little bit sensitive to, oh, I, I feel like we can't let down our Sam Bankman fried shenanigans guard yet in case he pulls some other, pulls some new things out. And I, that's why I'm like, I don't really know what's going to happen with the sentencing because his sentencing hearing is, is on March 28th and that's still three or four months away and there could be major shenanigans since then. Maybe he gets like an illegal cell phone in his jail cell. Like, I don't know. And there's a whole other trial. We don't even know whether or not that's actually going to happen with all that too. So I don't know. I think, yeah, I, I don't have quite as many nightmares as, as it sounds like Tracy might have run about Sam and where he could come back or pop out next. But I do think, I don't know, I got the sense when I looked at him, even from like before the trial began to 
after he was put in jail the first time for suspected witness tampering on Caroline Ellison after he leaked the diaries to the New York Times and they published those, he seemed like a different guy, honestly, uh, a little bit. Like a little bit of the fight had left his body, at least in terms of what he looked like in the courtroom. And I think this blow, too, I always got the sense that he hadn't given up hope that he was going to get off. And I think that wears on you. So I don't know. I think everyone on the call and everyone who's watched it play out, like this went exactly as it was expected in terms of guilty across the board. No one had high hopes that anything different was going to happen. And maybe except for his parents. And I think now is 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 the time for the the industry as well, by the way. Everybody else just really wanted this to be over to move on and look past the fraud. And you still got much more of those coming down the pike. So I don't know how true it is that we actually do move past it, but at least for Sam, I think. I'm more in the camp that that it might be finally over. Well, why don't we leave it there? This is terrific. It's a lot of fun. I love concluding the psychology of Sam. It's inscrutable. Still trying to understand the parenting dynamic. Was he an unloved kid or what? I don't know. But thank you both for joining us, Tracy and Zach. This is a real treat. Appreciate your coverage and analysis of this. Everyone give them a follow if you haven't already. Thank you both. Till next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening in on the episode. Remember, in the world of investing, the road less traveled often leads to the greatest rewards. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and chief investment officer at Lumida Wealth, where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. Invest wisely, stay ahead of the curve, and stay non-consensus. <laughs>